and welcome to episode 1996 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fancrafts, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. So the suggestions for a new nickname for Yandy Diaz have been flying in, much as the balls have been flying off of Yandy Diaz's bat. He hit two more homers since we talked about it last time. He has continued to hit balls in the air, and some of them have gone over the fence. So he is now fourth in baseball among qualified hitters when it comes to expected weighted on base average. So it's pretty impressive. This could be the real breakout. I know he was pretty good last year, but he's up to six homers already after having nine in 137 games last year. It's 17 games right now. That's a much improved ratio. So now that he is no longer a ground ball hitter, and thus can no longer be called ground beef. We put a call out for suggestions. What can we call the beef boy who hits the balls in the air now? Here's what we've gotten. Fly mignon. (laughs) That's not bad. Air beef. Airborne beef. I think that's a twister homage to the cows in the air. Space cowboy. Cow hyphen boy. Because he's hitting balls up into space and you get it. High stake. And then lastly, (laughs) raising the stakes. Hmm. But spelled E-A-K-S. Yeah. That's not a nickname. That's just sort of uh, a way to describe what he is doing this season. It's uh, it's all beef and cow themed. You get it. So (laughs) if ground beef didn't catch on, I don't have high hopes for any of these. I do have high hopes for Yandy Diaz and his fly balls. Yeah, I mean, the high hopes, mm-hmm. high hopes. Yep. We just got to keep workshopping it, you know. Yeah. It's not always, uh, it, it's not that these are bad. They are just, <laughs> I think that we can we can do better, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a, a, a catchy like, ah, there it is that we haven't stumbled upon yet. I hope so. Yeah, someone wrote in to tell us that we were not necessarily the first with the the ground something nickname because uh, apparently Charlie Morton, when he was with the Pirates, was sometimes referred to as Ground Chuck. Yeah. Because, of course, he's uh, Charlie and the Pirates broadcasters used to call him Ground Chuck for his uh, effective two-seamer and getting ground balls. So sort of the same genre as ground beef. Yeah, delightful. Anyway... We should probably talk about some big baseball news. (laughs) So I thought maybe we could start with a tale of two veteran lefties in the Mm. NL West. Because it's the not the best of times, but pretty good times for one and the worst of times for the other. Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. You've you've heard of him. But we haven't talked about him a whole lot lately. And this week was a big week for talking about Clayton Kershaw just because he reached an old school milestone. He got his 200th win. And that was just treated as kind of an occasion to celebrate Clayton Kershaw in general. And it's never a bad time to do that. The thing that really surprises me about this latter stage of Clayton Kershaw's career is just how effective he continues to be. It's not that he's just like on his last legs and he's just uh, tacking on big numbers or round numbers here. Like he is still so good, you know, (laughs) he's still really, really good. Like if you look at when his peak ended, when we saw the last of prime Kershaw, 
And I don't know exactly when you would put that, but I would put it probably 2018 was kind of the beginning of post-peak Kershaw because that was the first year that he did not get Cy Young votes after a run of many, many consecutive seasons having top five Cy Young finishes. And he wasn't bad that year, but he wasn't an all-star. He didn't get Cy Young votes. It just, it felt like that was the time. I, I went back and looked and Neil Payne actually wrote something for 538 in June of 2017 that was headlined, Clayton Kershaw might, parentheses, might not be the best pitcher in baseball anymore. That was like heresy at the time. Yeah. He was uh, suggesting that 538's ELO model had had someone go, I think, just a nose ahead of, of Kershaw. I think it was Scherzer, maybe. And then in early 2018, in May, I wrote an article headlined, Is Pete Kershaw Gone for Good? Mm. And then later that year, August of 2018, Michael Bauman, with a, a typically Baumanic headline. <laughs> By the way, I've been enjoying just what has happened. The the effect that Michael Bauman has had on Fancraft's headline style is seismic. I mean, you can always pick. You can not tell. that. Yeah, I mean, you can often tell a Meg headline too. It, it's not that you are averse to puns or wordplay, but but a Bauman headline. That's just it's a whole different breed. Yeah, and I want to make clear, like um, I I cannot claim any credit here. I have I have walked uh, Bauman back from a couple that would have been, you know, potentially too much, right? Uh -huh. um, but he is an artist, yes. and I am glad to hear him being appreciated in his own time. Yeah. Look, you just you just got to let him, you got to let him cook, got to yeah. let him work. And, I, and then every now and again, you're like, so Michael, and then he's like, all right. And it's always a grudging acceptance of being um, reined in by me, a Philistine. I, I would I would even submit that like headlines are actually one of the weaker parts of my game as an editor. Mm. I don't find them inspired. I often struggle with them. And I feel even more insecure now that I am in the presence of um, a master. So, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to know which ones you walked back, given some of the ones that you didn't. <laughs> like the the recent one about the trash pandas uh, hit, hitless loss or yes. loss without allowing any hits. That was a reference to a Soviet propaganda poster that yeah. Batman has hanging <laughs> yeah. in his dwelling. Yeah. I, I had to Google that one. And then when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, that checks out. I remember one Sam Miller passing on some advice to, I think maybe Craig, who then passed it on to me, that, you know, like, um, sometimes you write jokes for the people who get them, you mm -hmm. know? The, it doesn't ever, uh, everything doesn't always have to appeal to everybody, but yep. the ones that it gets to, you're like, oh. Yeah, right. I don't mind doing a little work to figure out what the, the, the joke was. And also, if I'm in the small group that actually got the reference, then I'll forever be loyal to Michael yeah. Bauman. Anyway, he anyway. wrote a piece in August 2018, Repent, Repent, Clayton Kershaw is no longer the best pitcher in baseball. So I think that was the year that you could pinpoint. And that was also the year that Jacob deGrom ascended yes. to, to deity status. So since the beginning of that season, so since post-peak Kershaw is still one of the very best pitchers in baseball. So just like 2018 to 2023 to date, Clayton Kershaw is in Fangraph's war, tied with Kevin Gossman for 10th 
of all pitchers. So he's basically still a, a top 10 pitcher over that span. He's fourth in ERA, 2.82, fifth in park-adjusted ERA, 69, obligatory, nice. And then if you look at, say, adjusted FIP, he's uh, also tied for 10th with Max Freed. And we talk about how well he's still effective on an inning per inning basis, but he does miss time and he tends to have the bulky back creep up on him. Mm -hmm. And that's true. But he's also 26th in innings pitched since then. So that's not so bad. He's actually pitched more innings than Jacob DeGrom has over that span. So if post-peak Kershaw, if decline phase Kershaw is like just uh, toward the bottom of the top 10 of pitchers and starters in baseball. And that's not even like skewed toward the early part of that period. I mean, he had a 2.28 ERA last year. He has a 2.52 ERA yeah. this year. Like, yeah. He, he's still awesome, you yeah. know? And uh, he's currently leading the National League in innings pitched as we speak on Thursday. I don't think that will persist. And probably he'll probably not. have his annual or biannual IL stint at yeah. some point. But man, when he's healthy and available, he's yeah. still awesome. It's just it's a testament to how high his peak was that post peak is right. like still a top ten pitcher. Yeah, it's um he has been surpassed in terms of like best in the league, but I also think the um, you know, the stories of his demise have been greatly yeah. exaggerated, right? And mm-hmm. so now it's just a matter of is he in the midst of one of those IL stints. Because, you know, at least in my experience, backs don't get better as Mm -hmm. you age, right? That tends to only move in one direction. Mm -hmm. Um, But when he is able to take the mound, like, it's... It's very good. You know, it's just... um, It's just very good. So, it's exciting. It's it's nice. It's differently good because he's such a different pitcher now. I mean, he he still has some of the same weapons he used to, but the fact that he's just like, he gets it done throwing 91 or so these days in a league that throws a lot harder than that. I mean, if if he had thrown 91 when he came up, that might have been average or or better, but now it's a few ticks below average and he has at the same time lost at least a few ticks and still super effective because he just pumps sliders in there, throws more sliders than almost anyone still got the curve like it's just he kind of pitches backwards and everyone knows that he's going to be throwing the slider constantly and he still has great command and it just it works so it's uh, really fun and he's he's like the same age as Jagram basically which always surprised he's like a couple months older a few months older than Jacob Jagram which is just weird because he's been doing it at this level for so long and really like he would have been a a Hall of Famer and an all-time great, at least in terms of peak, if he had just completely collapsed after his peak. And it it looked for a while like maybe he wouldn't tack on that much and that would kind of be that. But no, he's had this whole second act where he still remains productive and usually available. And he's just uh, further burnishing his legacy and his image. So I hope that he continues to rack up round numbers just so that we can continue to have opportunities to appreciate him. And I also enjoyed Bailey at Foolish Baseball pointed out that 
He also, in that start when he won his 200th game, broke Nolan Ryan's all-time record for most consecutive games with at least one strikeout. (laughs) So it's 333 games with at least one strikeout, which uh, is almost all of the games that he has pitched. So it's uh, maybe a bit of an era effect there. But still just a testament to the longevity and the effectiveness. So all hail Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, Mm. there's Madison Bumgarner. Mm. Speaking of guys who haven't adjusted... No, not at all. So Madison Bumgarner now designated for assignment by the Diamondbacks. And I remember when we had Nick Picoro on for the Diamondbacks preview pod, we talked about how long is the leash? How long are they going to go with Madison Bumgarner? And I think he said perhaps uh, not that long if he (laughs) keeps pitching poorly. And boy, he has. So it turns out that the leash was four starts long and he has an ERA over 10. So I guess uh, that'll do it in light of the past few years of ineffectiveness and injuries. So it really is just the other side of the coin. And I don't know, like if he'll enter his Dallas Keuchel phase now and he'll just kind of bum, no pun intended, around the league and teams will pick him up and give him a chance and see if they can find something in him or whether he will mount his horse probably literally and ride off into the sunset. But oh, boy. <laughs> anyway, I I guess that's the end, at least, of Madison Bumgarner's Diamondbacks career. They're off to a fine start other than Madison Bumgarner, but he still has a uh, what, like 35 million, 37 million left on that five-year deal that he signed before 2020. So that didn't work out so well for them. No, it didn't. I mean, it didn't really hold them back from anything either. Like that's always the the thing Mm -hmm. about deals like that on clubs that are sort of in the midst of either trading away or moving on from, you know, their other big pieces. But yeah, like he's owed 23 million this year, 14 next year. Um, but I don't know, like they're not in a particularly tight payroll position. Like it's not like eating that money is going to prevent them from doing anything because so much of their young core is still, you know, cheap and cost controlled. And even, you know, even the guys who aren't going to be for too terribly much longer, like Corbin Carroll, like they're not into the expensive part of his extension yet and won't be for mm-hmm. a little while. Right. So and, you know, they still have Cattell, he'll make like $13.5 million next yeah. year. So they're not going to be per- hamstrung in any particularly meaningful way um, unless they decide to be by eating mm-hmm. that. And I, I just, like, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to – you don't want to root for people to lose their jobs, right? That's like a crummy thing to root for. But <laughs> one does one does suspect, um, based on the combination of, uh, of performance and comportment, yeah, <laughs> that this might be a an instance of some amount of addition by subtraction. You know, at least based on his behavior in the Cardinals game yesterday, that's like, ridiculous. Yeah, just a, a, a real red ass to the end. Oh, geez, and it's just you know. This is a fun, exciting young team. Like, they're still obviously putting it together and figuring out what exactly the next good uh, Diamondbacks team is going to look like. But I feel like we're getting a lot of those pieces now. And while I don't necessarily expect them to, like, win the West or be even in second place when we reach, say, the All-Star break, um, you know, they're 11-8. and 
and uh, they have some exciting young guys, and we're we're getting we're getting good. It's good, you know. There's like good vibes in the desert, and then <laughs> there was Madison Moongerner. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. If people didn't see, I'll link to it. But he told Wilson Contreras to shut the f up, right? Because Wilson yeah. Contreras, he, I don't even know what I don't he even know. did. Like he he took a big swing at a ball, he fouled it off. It, it sounded like maybe he groaned or he was upset with himself that he missed that pitch. Maybe that's what set Madison Bumgarner off that Contreras thought he should have crushed that pitch, which it probably was a crushable pitch. And Madison Bumgarner has served up lots of crushed pitches. So yeah. it would stand to reason that Contreras could have crushed it. And then Bumgarner starts jawing at him and cursing at him. And Contreras is like, what? Like, what did I do? And then he's upset and he jaws back. And then Bumgarner ended up walking him and Contreras bat flipped, which was great. I kind of enjoy the the bat flip on the walk, but especially when it's like a pointed one. Yeah. Just because he knows that. Summer down over there. Yeah. It's going to get under his skin even more. And things went south for Bumgarner from there in that game and then also in his career. So I, I guess. To be charitable, I suppose uh, Bumgarner probably, you know, things not going great for him career-wise these days. And maybe he knew that uh, he was kind of at the end of his rope and and knows that he's diminished and everything. But still, that was uh, kind of vintage Madison Bumgarner. The stuff might not be anymore, but the things that he says and tries to police and gets upset about, that's uh, still the same old guy. Yeah. And to be clear, like, that was sort of exhausting even when he was good. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's like a level of performance at which I go, well, yeah, but be a red ass though. Like that's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but it is a particularly like <laughs> tired yeah. approach to the game when you are, you know, not very good anymore. And it was so strange. Cause like after the fact, after the game, you know, he was of course asked about it. And he said something to the effect of, like, you know, if you don't know, like, I don't know how to help you. But and then he followed that up by saying something like, I can't say more because I didn't pitch well. And it's like, so there is like some amount maybe of like, like introspection there or like Mm -hmm. reflection on oneself. But like, it's very limited. And I don't, you know, I don't understand. I don't understand. I understand feeling lousy if you were once as good at your job as Bumgarner was and then aren't anymore. Like, I can imagine that feeling really bad and being quite disorienting in your life and your understanding of yourself, right? Like, I I have some empathy for that piece of it, but you can't make that other people's problem because it's not, right? So mm-hmm. I will always think fondly on his performance on those Giants teams, particularly in the postseason, which was just like legitimately so thrilling, but it's fallen off since then, (laughs) (laughs) both, both the skill and my enjoyment of it, you know? So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So while we're in the West, I guess we should probably talk about the the biggest news and and a bigger bummer than Bumgarner getting DFA'd, which is that looks like the athletics will also be leaving and changing cities and locations. And this has been such a long time coming that there was part of me that wondered whether it 
would come, whether yeah. there just uh, there would be some resolution, the team would end up staying in Oakland. But now it looks like the the die is cast or very close to cast because the A's have entered into a binding agreement to purchase some land just uh, west of the Las Vegas Strip, forty nine acres with an option for additional eight. And they are hard at work at coming to an agreement to build a ballpark on that land as well. And they and Rob Manfred have signaled that they are basically turning their attention entirely to Las Vegas now. And Oakland politicians have acknowledged as much and basically said good riddance because they got the sense that they were being used as a a pawn, as a negotiating patsy. So I feel terrible for A's fans. Yeah. I mean, I've felt bad for them for a while just with this hanging over their head and the way the the team has been running to the ground. But it's still got to be a gut punch, I would imagine. Like, I've I've never gone through something like this, losing a a sports franchise that I rooted for or or grew up following. And that just really must be a body blow, like, despite – how that management group has done absolutely everything to turn their fans against them and to make them an unpalatable product to have them leave. I mean, yeah. And and for no great reason other than the fact that a billionaire just wants to make more billions and millions. Like, it's just, it sucks. It's, uh, it's really, really bad. Yeah, it's... We keep talking about this, like there are only, well, as of this moment, there are only 30 of these teams, right? And there might be differences in terms of like the the real spending power of some of them because they're in a smaller market or, you know, the, the media contract isn't as rich. We've seen time and again that like, while those are realities that we have to acknowledge, a lot of that is just your mindset, right? Being mm-hmm. being a small market team is a mindset. You don't have to behave that way. Like the Padres have said, what's the problem here? Just spend some money and be awesome and get your entire city super excited about you. And I don't know, you'll really profit from that and it'll be cool. Mm-hmm. So there is an alternative that exists. And if there are owners who are unwilling to swim in those waters, at least some of the time, then we need better owners. <laughs> like, there's nothing about owning a major league franchise that is like a God given right. Like, if you're not willing to put a competitive product on the field, if you're not willing to invest in your franchise, if you're not willing to view at least part of your responsibility as being a steward of a civic institution, you should get in a different business. Like, they're just too many rich people for us to settle for this crap. And I don't say that like there aren't problems with, you know, we've talked a lot about how like people should be less impressed with Steve Cohen. But like in this respect, I think it is a baseline. You know, it should be the minimum standard that you should be willing to invest in your club and view yourself as being in not just the money-making business, but the baseball business. And your fan base shouldn't be the ones to suffer when you fall short of that, you know, standard. It should be you that suffers and it should Mm -hmm. be you that has to divest yourself of the team rather than the city divesting itself of the team. So I, you know, I can't fault the, the people of Oakland, both as fans and then as their elected representatives feeling used because they were, I think it's good that they held the line on saying this is, 
This is just never a good economic proposition for municipalities. There are other things that our community could use this money for that would serve the people here better. Like that, that's the right stance to take. And it's really disappointing that their reward for thinking about the well being of their community and their constituents is that they don't have baseball there anymore. Like that sucks. Mm-hmm. So, and can I just say, like, and I say this as somebody who like voluntarily moved to the middle of the desert. Um, <laughs> Really weird that we keep committing, like, baseball resources to the American Southwest. You know, <laughs> like, I get that we're, you know, the uh, go Diamondbacks, right? They're here mm-hmm. already, and we're clearly, you know, lousy with complexes in the Valley. So I'm not saying we should pick up and move. But, like, there are very real, like, ecological reasons to not just build a, another ballpark in Vegas. As an aside, What's going to happen to the the almost brand new ballpark that they already have there? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I have a lot of questions. I about have so many questions. <laughs> the actual moving, right? Because, I mean, gosh, yesterday must have been just such a, a high and low swing of emotions because Mason Miller came up and right. was, was really good and, yeah. was, you know, throwing triple digits and yeah. there were... 12,000 fans there to see him, which is a big Wednesday crowd for for the A's these days. And through no fault of the fan base, they have not given them any reason to go, but they gave them a reason in Mason Miller. And he delivered and the game was close for most of it or half of it. And then, of course, uh, the A's bullpen tanked and they ended up losing 12 to 2. And then on the heels of that, there's this news about going to Vegas. But I, I do have a lot of questions. I mean, of course, it was reported as like the A's are going to foot the bill for the ballpark that they're going to build. But then it was also reported that there are all sorts of like subsidies or like sweetheart tax arrangements right. and everything. And so in effect, they are not really going to be footing the bill, which no. is not surprising. That's just how these things uh, tend to work. That's why you leverage your city to, to get a good deal out of the other city, which is what they've been doing. That's a standard operating procedure yep. for sports franchises. Yeah, As a, as a uh, Seattleite, yeah, My heart yeah. goes out. It sucks. Yeah. And so they're they're talking about a 30,000 to 35,000 seat place, which is quite small. I yeah. mean, that would be down there with uh, Cleveland and, and I guess uh, the Trop as well with the tarps and everything. So that's not a big attendance place. Obviously, retractable roof, it would have to be there. And I think it would be close. It would be like a, a mile away or so from where Allegiant Stadium is, where the Raiders play, and then like a mile west of the T-Mobile Arena where the Golden Knights play. And there's just been such an exodus of sports franchises from Oakland, from the Bay Area, and then such an influx into Las Vegas. And I know those sports franchises in Las Vegas have been fairly successful thus far, but also the teams, I mean, the Golden Knights were good right away. Right. And also there just are not nearly as many games in those sports. I mean, it's one thing to have football. It's another thing to have 81 home games a year. So I just don't know. Like, those franchises have gotten some support. And sure, I mean, there's a a lot of tourist trade there. I just – would you like – would you be like, I'm going to go to Vegas to see the A's? While I'm in Vegas, I'm going to go see the A's? Just – it seems like, you know, it's not a big – media market. It's not a huge population market. And it seems like it could be one sports franchise too many for that city to support 
well. You know, I know there have been challenges with having two teams in the Bay Area too, but a lot of that is just the ballpark and and the ownership right. and everything. It's not, you know, the fan base, the, the fans are very into the ace. So yes. yeah, there are, there are some issues here. You know, it was like, it's ironic because Mason Miller gets summoned from AAA. I mean, that's right. where he is from Las Vegas. That's where their AAA team is. And and they've drawn fairly well, I, I think, by PCL standards. They're sure. close to the top of the league in attendance. So I guess that's a positive sign. But like, could you keep playing there? Could you have your AAA affiliate and your big league team right. there? And also the thing I really wonder about is like, they're talking about the ballpark not being ready until 2027. Right. What Where do you do, do they, until then? What do you because do until then? You can't stay. I mean, I don't think there's ever been a case of a baseball team like announcing that it was leaving and then staying that long after everyone knew that it was just like, I mean, that that seems That seems not- Untenable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at the atmosphere Ugh, now where yeah. they've driven everyone away. <laughs> like, what will it be like over the next few years knowing that you're just counting down the days? I mean, that's like continuing to cohabitate with an ex or so. It's like you break yes. up and you have to keep living together for a while because uh, someone has to move out and find somewhere else to live. And, you know, I'm sure that has been done painlessly and successfully at times, but it sure seems fraught because how do you move on when the person that you're breaking up with is is right there under the same roof and you're probably still fighting and emotions are raw and everything? I mean, that's what it would be like, or yes. it would just be a total ghost town because what reason would you have to support them at all? Well, and you still have the problem of the fact that like that ballpark is rapidly becoming a place that just is not a major league facility. <laughs> yeah, it's, like it's a possum habitat. It's a possum habitat. When <laughs> when the visiting broadcast booth like literally can't do its job where it's supposed to because of like vermin. Sorry possums. This is not an anti-possum podcast. No. This is a you're a useful prop in this moment podcast. <laughs> like what what is the interim four years gonna gonna look like and also don't they have a lease renewal somewhere in there if i'm the city of oakland i would just say sorry (laughs) we're tearing this sucker down go play in your your triple a park for a couple of years if you want to could do that i mean the capacity there is like ten thousand or something i mean that's that's not very big league but then again the the a's are not very big league these days and and they probably do just fine right now with a ten thousand person capacity because they're not exceeding that all that often anymore so Unless uh, they're suddenly going to start investing in the team again. Like, on the one hand, it's, you know, stop drawing this out. Stop doing the major league situation. Stop having this lame duck franchise. Like, let's not make this any more protracted than it already is. Like, at least, you know, it's like losing a a loved one to a long illness or something. It's like you, you hate when it happens, but it's almost like a relief when they're not suffering anymore and, yeah. and you can start to mourn in a different way. I mean, yeah. it's not exactly the same with a, a fan base and a franchise, but it's not entirely dissimilar. So at least like now, if you're an A's fan, I mean, probably a lot of A's fans just feel like everything is so cynical and we were used and and how can I even follow this sport anymore, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I would hope that 
not all A's fans will lose their love of baseball, that they'll be able to transfer their loyalty to another team that wants them or just become fans of baseball at large, which is a, a position that, that we have advocated or adopted. So it can be done, but also it, it probably can't be done immediately because there's going to be some period of time where you're still smarting from this. It all feels so... If for for a situation that seems like it was designed to leverage Oakland against a, itself in service of a future city, it also feels so unplanned and sort of hackneyed. Like, again, what is the plan for the next couple of years? It's so hot, Ben. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. so hot. In the middle of the day there. Also, they're going to be playing on the moon. Mm -hmm. Like, this is another ballpark that's going to have... I mean, like, you've seen what the numbers are like coming out of that place for AAA. Like, it's not a typical... Crank up the humidor. Yeah, it's not a normal offensive environment. So you have the, the elements of playing there. You have the fact that it is, you know, in a place that might not have water in 15 years. It is... I just, I, what is the plan? How is this really the, the, the thing that major league baseball wants? And like, part of this is of course being facilitated by the fact that like major league baseball is now just like a pro gambling outfit, right? Like I can't imagine Mm -hmm. we end up with a franchise in Vegas if the, you know, wins hadn't shifted on the question of gambling. I mean, that's probably true of any of these sports. Again, other sports playing there, winter sports, Ben, winter sports. And sometimes it's very hot in September and October in Vegas. I don't mean to say that that can't happen. But winter sports, they are winter sports. <laughs> yeah. Baseball, famously not really a winter sports, although if they ever play postseason ball there, I'm sure it'll be lovely. Mm-hmm. Just like, what is the plan? This sucks. This really sucks. It does. Yeah. Also, like, what happens to all the people who work for the A's? Congratulations, mm. you have to move to Vegas now? Yeah, probably. <laughs> or you're out of a job. Yeah. It's rough. It's rough all around. Yeah. And the, the contrast is striking. <laughs> the two teams whose ballpark situations have been unresolved for some time, right. the Rays and the A's, where every time Manfred is asked about expansion, he's like, we got to figure out the Rays and the A's first, which makes sense because, uh, of course, the way that they work these deals out is right. the leverage, right? right? And so if they were to add teams, then they would take away potential markets that those teams could threaten to move to. So, right. of course, they want to sort those situations situations out before they expand. So if you are someone who wants to see expansion happen, I guess this is a hurdle that had to be cleared or knocked (laughs) over one way or the other. But, you know, you have the Rays and their unending ballpark uncertainty, and they've outscored their opponents by 83 runs. Right, they at least win. They're winning, you know, and then the A's have been outscored by 86 runs. I mean, they're at opposite ends of the spectrum here with these, like, near-historic run differentials. And, yeah, if you're going to be in limbo a little bit and keep your fans kind of guessing about whether you'll be around for the long haul, at least uh, you could keep winning while you're doing it. That would be nice. You could be an entertaining team, and the A's just went full major league instead. So... I don't know. The only thing I can think is that, like, just the depths that they've sunk to and how unwatchable they are and just the message that they've sent, the signal that they've sent that we don't even want you to watch this team or come to this ballpark. 
maybe that makes it easier to turn the page in a way just to, you know, to, to be spiteful. I mean, they've been spiteful. So just to say, well, fine, like you've driven us away, you know, maybe we don't feel as much for, for this franchise as we used to because they have just sort of, it's scorched earth, you know, so it sucks. You know, I, yeah. it's not the first time that they've relocated and it's not the second time that right. they've relocated. So the athletics will go on. They're just an itinerant team. They're a traveling team. Maybe they should be like one of those uh, indie ball teams that just like has no no home and just uh, travels around everywhere. It's just a traveling team permanently. It's uh, almost what they've been like. But they were in Oakland longer than they were anywhere else. And they were there for a really long time. And it's been quite a long time since Eddie Fridge has relocated, almost 20 years. So this, uh, as inevitable as it seemed or as long in the making as it seems, it, it still just sort of sent shockwaves, I think, when that news broke. Yeah, but if they were a traveling team, they wouldn't go play in the middle of the desert. <laughs> Probably not, no. <laughs> Condolences to A's fans. If you want to write in and, and vent, uh, please do and, and share your, your thoughts and uh, we will listen. <laughs> yeah, so. crummy day for, for everyone in, mm -hmm. involved. I'm very sorry. I'm just very sorry. Yeah, me too. Well, maybe this will cheer you up. I've got a Boris metaphor for you. <laughs> it's something. <laughs> so uh, Stephanie Epstein wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated talking to Soto and Boris. And it's about basically how uh, Soto says they cut off negotiations with yeah. the Nationals when he says the Nationals leaked the, the terms of the discussion or what was going on there. And he took that as a betrayal and, and said no more. And there's a, a Boris quote in here. So, so Soto's agent, Scott Boris, says San Diego has not made an offer as to an extension. He adds that he does not take its lack of overture to mean Soto is not a priority. Quote, just because you have all the ingredients, when you have the oven sitting there for two years, it doesn't mean you have to bake the cake today. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's always the reaction, isn't it? What's on, on first read, on first hear. So what he's saying is, I, I think, basically that they don't have to do it immediately. So the fact that they have not made an extension offer and, you know, the way he is uh, playing to date this season, <laughs> they, yeah. they might not feel great urgency until he inevitably heats up. But he's saying you have the ingredients. You got the Padres there. You got Soto there. You got Peter Seidler's money there. So you have the ingredients, but the oven will be sitting there for a while because he's not at free agency yet. So you don't have to bake the cake today. You can wait because the oven's there and you got the ingredients and, and you can take your time baking the cake. Well, that is objectively true. You know, um, you don't you don't get rid of your oven on non-cake days. You know, no. you're not like, get out of here. Um, right. It depends uh, on whether the ingredients are perishable, I guess. You right? still don't I mean, get rid of the oven even if the ingredients are perishable. No, you don't get rid of the oven. That is true. But, but the ingredients, you might not want to wait two years. Sometimes they sure. spoil. Yeah. Well, yes. To be clear, particularly since some uh, or or many cakes call for dairy, definitely mm. not a two-year kind of experience no. there. You know, got to mm -hmm. re replenish. But see, here's the nice thing, you know, if we want to extend – uh, the metaphor, they they will keep playing baseball and good baseball in mm -hmm. the meantime, and then you will replenish those supplies because right. um, you can buy new eggs, right, <laughs> or different 
milk or fresh butter or, yeah. you know, or, um, you know, I, even for two years, like a lot of the, the substitutes you might use if you were, say, um, trying to, to bake without any animal byproducts, you might still need to replace them, but it still holds, right? Mm-hmm. That those pieces could still uh, go into the, you could get new ones, put them into uh, the oven, oven stays, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. um, the oven is, I guess, Petco in this case, because um, <laughs> unlike other small market teams that we might describe as chumps, um, we would not use that word to describe the Padres because they are like, we we like this oven. It works very well. It is mm-hmm. picturesque even. Um, maybe the highlight, you know, the, the, the coming together place, because you know how yeah. when you entertain and then everyone comes to the kitchen, um, mm-hmm. even when you put snacks in the living room, you're like, I've put the crudite over there in the hopes of establishing better flow. And everyone's like, no, I just want to hang out in the kitchen because that's where the cook is, right? right. And you want to hang out with the cook. Mm-hmm. I guess, <laughs> is the cook AJ Preller or is the cook Seidler? Like, I can't. Anyway, yeah, I guess, they're the uh, hosts, right? They're, yeah. they're hosting together. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think I think probably Seidler's the cook and cook. Preller's the sous chef or something. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. Yes. Very good. Or okay. like, um, you know, some in some households, you have a person who's like, my job is, is the cooking piece. And then the other person's job is like, I'm going to make cocktails. You know, I mm-hmm. make cocktails. So maybe right. you're a cocktail maker. You know, you got to. <laughs> yeah. Yes, chef. <laughs> anyway. Here's anyway. something else Scott Boris said. This was uh, in relation to one of his other high-profile clients, Max Scherzer, and the recent uh, sticky stuff situation surrounding Scherzer. I can't believe it took us this long to get to that, really. <laughs> well, here's what Boris said trying to defend Scherzer. Mm-hmm. MLB standards and rules enforcement should mandate and require an objective, verifiable standard. Yes. If you want to attack the integrity of the competition, you need clear, precise standards, or else you damage the game and its players. The Cuzzy on-field spectrometer Incredible. is not the answer. That was one of my favorite lines. It's it's it, if it isn't a band by the end of the week, <laughs> we don't have a civilization, Ben. You know, this isn't a society uh, anymore. So good, Phil Cuzzy, the umpire who was inspecting him. The Cuzzy on-field spectrometer. I love on-field it. On-field spectrometer. The Cuzzy quotes were great too, because uh, or I guess it was Dan Bellino, it the was home Dan plate Bellino. umpire. Yeah. Can I? Can I cause <laughs> yeah, this, please. This do the brought honors. me. As far as level of stickiness, this is the stickiest it's been since I've been inspecting hands, which now go back three seasons. It was far more than we've ever seen before on a pitcher in live action. (laughs) Yeah, it was so sticky that when we touched his hand, our fingers were sticking to his hand. (laughs) I just, uh, I love, I mean, it gets very silly sometimes and sometimes things are inconsistently applied, but I don't care. It's all worth it just for umpires uh, talking about stickiness. I love the, it's rosin, just rosin, like yelling. You know, the things Uh, you have to yell in a work context are just, (laughs) you know, it's like a, it's a level of ridiculous that is so apparent. Like on the one hand, I, I'm sympathetic to the notion that we are, we are leveling a, a meaningful suspension and granted, like he's a starter. So like, this is what 10 games is like two starts probably you know we're leveling like a, a meaningful automatic suspension based on 
the perceptions of umpires who are not scientists, right? They are not actually spectrometers. They're Mm-mm. they're guys. So I I can appreciate why one would feel nervous about automatic punishment in the face of an unscientific process, right? And it is interesting that I think a number of people have noted that of the three instances I think that we're aware of of a guy getting ejected for having sticky stuff, because he's been at the center of all of those, right? Yes. He's, yeah, he's taking those those guidelines seriously. <laughs> he's taking them seriously. And so we are presented with, I think, well, three options, right? And we will we will use them. We will label them as we would, um, you know, porridge presented to different bears, right? <laughs> One option is that the only person doing this well is Phil Cousy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That he is the only one applying the appropriate level of sticky vigor uh, to this situation, right? And that. You know, his comrades in arms are are falling down on the job, right? And that we should, in theory, have, if we are taking enforcement seriously, more ejections rather than no ejections. Like, the the, the relative dearth of, of ejections could be read as this is not an appropriately robust enforcement environment, right? That's one mm-hmm. interpretation. The other, another interpretation is that, like, actually, this is just right. Like, he is... When faced with particularly sticky stuff, the stickiest stuff, stuff that stayed on his hands, Ben, it stayed on his hands for mm-hmm. innings, you know, mm-hmm. it was so sticky that, that like he is detecting the worst offenders and that he is um, ejecting them appropriately. And then we have the possibility that he is a, a petty despot and <laughs> needs to be disciplined himself, right? And I feel like those are the, the that's the range of potential interpretations of this situation. And like, um, it's gonna be emotional. And you have a guy who's very intense when he's on the mound, and so the the it's rosin. <laughs> it's just like uh, sweat and rosin, sweat and rosin, sweat yeah. and rosin. <laughs> I don't want to over or underreact to this situation because I know that a lot of people, in a way that they don't find pleasing, read umpires as cops, right? And they're like, this is, um, you know, the, the exercising of a, a power that they are delighting in in a way that is troubling and potentially problematic. Although I would say mm-hmm. um, the fact that there have been so few of these ejections suggests that maybe that's not true in this instance, right? That there is not an overabundance mm-hmm. of enforcement. But maybe there is with El Kazi. But maybe Mark Scherzer just had some really sticky <laughs> stuff on his hands. Like, you know, like he had the stickiest, the stickiest stuff. As Kazi said, far stickier than anything that we felt certainly today and anything, anything this, this year. Anything this year. TMI, Phil. I don't need to know how many sticky things you felt, but this was the stickiest. So and I enjoyed the, the post-game protest by Scherzer where he's going on, I'd have to be an idiot to just come back out there, which, you know, it's uh, there's something to that because he was right. warned, obviously. And, and but, given the opportunity uh, to take it off, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, like, you know, Max, Max, but also Phil, Phil. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it takes some courage if I you're Phil Cousy to go after. I mean, that's like, that's a Toreador getting in the ring with the bull. I mean, goodness, in Max Scherzer in the middle of a in yeah. game mode on the mound, I would not want to cross him and uh, go back multiple times to feel yeah. his hands. And we've seen him, I mean, we've 
two years ago when the enforcement stuff started, where he had one of the more viral demonstrative reactions, just like, you know, taking his belt off, just like (laughs) drop a trow, basically, like inspect me wherever you want. But uh, yeah, he he was running out of patience here. I'm, I'm all for strict enforcement of this. Because I do think that sticky stuff uh, keeps coming back and the spin rates keep rising when left alone. And I do think there are effects of that and you want more balls in play. And really, like, that's one way to to try to restrain the strikeouts is to keep the sticky stuff down. But it does have to be consistent standards and standards that you can sort of stay within in the course of normal events. So it's, it's hard. I mean, this was always said to be one hurdle here was that like, well, how are you going to stay within these boundaries if you're allowed to have rosin and you can sweat, but you're not allowed to have it on certain parts, you know, it can't be on your glove or whatever. It's like, how are you going to keep it off of there? So it's because it's going to go everywhere. It's sticky and sweaty and clumpy was one word that Scherzer used. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I mean, look, if it happens every now and then and it's uh, as entertaining as it was in this case, it's, uh, if you had to pick someone to pick on, again, you have to be brave to do it with Scherzer. But it does lead to a very theatrical reaction, which was entertaining at least. So it's, uh, you know, not the worst thing from an entertainment value standpoint, but I, I wouldn't want anyone to uh, be doing things legally and trying to stay within the rules and and still running afoul of them. Right. And that's the piece of this that is still um, potentially kind of concerning. Right. And so I don't I don't know what the right answer is, because you got to you got to keep it moving. You know, we don't. How long does mm-hmm. chemistry take, Ben? You know, like what is what is the average length of a of a chemistry? Yeah, well, as you have said, yeah. <laughs> of a chemistry. Okay, chemistry. You yeah. know, somewhere out there, we have a listener who's like, the chemistry's really fallen off on this pod. You know, they went from Jeff to Megan, then it just really fell off. That that <laughs> chemistry, not not the not the harder to quantify vibe chemistry that remains very no, strong the, but the science the, the literal yeah. chemistry it it has fallen off can i confess <laughs> something kind of embarrassing ben sure i've never taken chemistry really huh. yeah i it look i'll tell you why okay it's not because i'm opposed to science because that would be absurd but <laughs> it just it just so happened it just so happened ben that when i was a junior in high school I had a scheduling conflict with the time that I could have taken chemistry that was very complicated because I was a nerd loser and I was doing theater and also this other stuff and had an AP course. Anyway, and I was in pre-calc, so I had, I was at a a sufficient math level that I could just take physics. And so then I just Mm. took, and then I just ended up taking two years of physics. You know, I just took physics for two years instead of taking chemistry. And so there's this big hole in my knowledge. I I don't know that it's that different than the people who've actually taken chemistry and then not Yeah, I don't know how much I retained of gone my high on to become chemists. Yeah. I don't know how much of the physics I retained and I took two years of that. So mm-hmm. anyway yeah. um, But as you've said, can't we just do the TSA swab test? You know? Oh, well, Does that I, only work for explosives? Could it not work for, for spider tack or something? Or or Ben, 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 I have, I have it. I have, oh my God, I have the perfect Ben. The the rally on field spectrometer. No, no, no. We need to train adorable dogs to smell 
The sticky stuff. Yeah, sticky sniffing dogs. Snick, it's sneaky sniffing dogs. <laughs> Cannot say the words. Sticky stuff sniffing dogs. Now, I am generally opposed to further deputizing dogs into the you know police, but in this case, I think it solves a lot of problems. One, is it more scientific? I actually don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the like dog sniffing stuff is kind of junk science. Like I don't know for sure, but it feels like it could be, right? Doesn't it feel like it could kind of, I mean they have really good noses, but like yeah, they the, have amazing noses. They I don't do. Know. But isn't doesn't it sometimes suggest like a precision that you are a little skeptical of? Not to I don't want to <laughs> doubt dogs. Okay. <laughs> this is not a doubt. Dog doubting podcast. <laughs> Although I do sometimes doubt the dogs. So so but you train. You train an adorable dog to smell the sti- the, the sticky stuff, mm-hmm. and and first of all, here's what it cuts out of cuts out confrontation because Max Scherzer, look, he's very intense. He's not gonna yell at a dog. He's mm-hmm. not a monster, right? Mm-hmm. He's an intense competitor. He's not a sociopath, so he's not gonna yell at a dog. Also, yeah. the dog he couldn't understand. He has dogs or or has had dogs. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I think that I think in fact. I think, in fact, if I remember- Four dogs as of, yeah, a couple of years ago. I think he and his wife, like part of their charitable work is some some animal wellness stuff. Yes. uh, Welfare stuff. Yeah, they they cover adoption fees for dogs. Yeah. So he's not going to yell at a dog because he, Mm -hmm. we already know he loves dogs, right? We have this on record. So he loves dogs. Not going to yell at the dog. Also, it- it would be, I mean, it's probably more scientific than Phil Cuzzy touching your hands. Mm-hmm. And like, think of the, think of how cute it would be because you present your hands and they smell them and then you give, you'd give them like a little good boy. And, and that would be great. And there would be times I'm sure where the dogs would get really excited and they'd like jump up on, on the pictures and be like, Hey, I'm such a good boy. And they go, yeah. Oh, you're such a good boy. And then like it, the, the bat dogs, when the bat dogs get distracted right. sometimes, uh, that's a heartwarming moment. Everyone loves, everyone loves bat that. Dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, in some places, maybe the dogs could have multiple jobs. Like maybe you say, hey, we have an off day today, Oakland A's sticky stuff dog. Why don't you go see about that possum? You know, and I'm not <laughs> saying he should eat the possum because mm-hmm. this isn't an animal cruelty podcast either. I'm saying he should chase the possum away. Just chase yeah. it. He yeah. doesn't have to hurt it. He just has to chase it. This is a great idea. You've cracked. The I case. think I've cracked it. I think I. I think you know. I solved this. I was an early adopter of the. Um, you know the 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 challenge system. Mm-hmm. They should just hire me for a day. Like it doesn't have to be a whole week. Even I just I'll give them some ideas. You know. Yeah. No, this is great. What next time someone says you're commissioner for a day, what do you do? Sticky stuff dogs. S- sticky sniffing dogs. <laughs> yeah. First order of business. Love it. Is that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is great. It, it's not awkward at all to, it's not, in, I mean, everyone's used to being sniffed and, and felt by dogs, right? So there will be none of this like, oh, I don't know about holding this uh, other man's hand in public. So oh, now, everyone. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, you know, people should not be silly about that. Now, there might be some people who are afraid of dogs. And yeah. so in that instance, they should be able to have the umpire do the check because I right, don't want to make anybody request. nervous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, um, who is it who's afraid of cats? Somebody's afraid of cats. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, Someone I'm is mildly af- <laughs> allergic to them. <laughs> Someone, some baseball player is afraid of cats and, like, his teammates kept, like, surprising him with a cat. Not a real ah, cat, like a stuffed Eduardo cat. Eduardo Escobar. Eduardo Escobar. Yeah. <laughs> I know so many specific personal things about him. I, I know yes. about Fogel what he likes. Power. Yeah. What he likes to eat and mm-hmm. the... 
the cat thing. I know that yeah. about him. That's yep. weird because we've never <laughs> met. You know, Eduardo, <laughs> no. how are you? I mean, it's not well, going great no for you wonder this year. But... You can't have him over because you got cats, so yeah. you wouldn't want to be there anyway. Well, and he doesn't live here anymore, so, you know. Oh, there's that too. There's that. <laughs> yeah. There is a Fogo nearby, I think, so he'd be okay on that score. Yeah. So I was going to transition from, I, I don't have a Boris quote to go with this, but from Soto to his teammate, Fernando Tatis Jr.'s back. Yeah. As of today, Thursday. Of we, today. We've not yet seen him play, but he's back. One of yeah. the, the main characters of baseball is sort of a disgraced character of late, but Fernando Tatis will be back and playing in right field, presumably. Weird that Fernando Tatis uh, will be in right field, and meanwhile, it sounds like Mookie Betts might play shortstop one of these days, so that would yeah. be fun. Didn't see that coming, the future where Mookie's playing shortstop and Tatis is not in the NOS. Anyway, Fernando Tatis coming back. The Padres need him. They have barely scored of late. Their last four games, they have scored a combined two runs. <laughs> so that lineup has not been as uh, vaunted as it was supposed to be. They're, they're 24th in runs scored and 21st mm -hmm. in WRC+, plus, which is weird when you just look at the names. Yeah. And the names are going to be even more impressive when Fernando Tatis is in, it, in that yeah. lineup. So I am really excited to see what he'll do like yeah. he's been tearing it up in triple a right he i think he hit uh five homers in the space of one game basically like from one game to the next he he hit five combined across them but like in basically one game's worth of of playing time so he's been hitting down there i think he's ready i think he is ready for a promotion so we'll see you know <laughs> This this highly touted prospect for Nino Tatis Jr. coming up from AAA. And I'm very curious to see how quickly, if at all, he can put the events of the last couple of years behind him. You yeah. know, will he go back to being as great as he was last time we saw him on a big league field? Will people hold the PD suspension against him? You know, what does he have to do to reduce that stigma the yeah. way that his now teammate Nelson Cruz has, where, you know, it's not the first thing that comes to mind anymore when you think about him. And Be then, delightful and take care of younger players for a decade. Well, yeah, <laughs> play help. until you're <laughs> played for the next 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Be a veteran mentor. Yeah. yeah. But I think also playing at an MVP level again would, would, would go a long way. Yep. So, yeah, will he be the same player post-suspension, post-long layoff, post-wrist issues, post-shoulder issues? I mean, there's there's a lot of baggage there, but it would not be at all surprising to me if he just went right back to playing at a high level and by the end of the season, everyone loves him again. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's right. I, I am looking at the leaderboard. And you know, you're right that I did not expect the Padres to be 21st. I really didn't expect the Cubs to have the fourth highest WRC plus in yeah. the majors. Mm -hmm. That's very surprising. Pittsburgh being at nine, they have the same WRC plus as the Phillies and Rangers now. Granted, you know, they will continue to just not have O'Neill Cruz for a while. So that mm -hmm. you might expect to shift around. Um, yeah. Wow. Like um, there are the 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 Red Sox the the Boston Red Sox <laughs> what it's still early it's still early <laughs> but um anyway oh it's really sad you click into the Boston Red Sox and it's like Adam Duvall oh <laughs> yeah bummer man anyway well, yeah 
the, I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a, a splash. I don't know if he'll still be rusty or whether the rehab assignment has been long enough to knock the rust off. Anyway, but curious to see how he'll be in the outfield. Yes. Curious to see if, if he'll still have the bat, if he'll just still play with the same uh, joie de vivre. I mean, you know, yeah. will will he go back to being everyone's uh, favorite young player, Fernando Tatis Jr.? Here's what I think would be good. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I think that what might help is if he has some he has some mistakes in the outfield and then is really good because i think that you know people interact with the ped stuff in a in a a delicate way you know and mm-hmm. on the one hand i think you're right that coming back and being like really really good will certainly um endear him to padres fans but it might have the reverse the opposite um effect for for fans of other teams right because they might read that as him just continuing to be cheating, mm-hmm. um, which I don't say like I that you think he's going to do that. I just you know know how people react to the cheating stuff, and so it's it's tricky because like one of the things that made him so dynamic and fun was that like joie de vivre that he played with, and that can I think read differently to people who are sort of looking for a reason to read him as being like unrepentant or cocky. Mm-hmm. And so it's a tricky thing to have to balance. Now, what he could just say is, I'm just going to play as good as I can and and people will, will say whatever they say because I don't actually have a ton of control over them. And I would say that is a very, like, evolved way of thinking about it. But I, I wonder, like, maybe, like, he makes a mistake and then he looks, you know, bashful about it. And then he's really good after that. And then people will be like, oh, Fernando, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of the Padres, we were talking about uh, based Rob Manfred the other day, and you were yeah. saying, no, he's not. We should not yeah. be, be so quick to compliment yeah. him. And he did come out and uh, talk about limiting contract lengths. He said, a reform that has been of interest to ownership for a number of years is a limitation of contract length. Obviously, players love it. It gives them financial security for a very long period of time. The difficulty, and I think players will come to appreciate this as time goes by, those contracts result in a transfer from the current stars to yesterday's stars. At some point, that has to be true. And I think it is an issue that is important for us to stay focused on because it creates inflexibility that affects the quality of the teams that you put on the field. But Robert... Rob. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <It's... laughs> so then pay the other guys sooner. What are you talking about, man? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, that sounds very much like uh, <laughs> some sort of argument to try to make this more palatable to players, which I'm sure will not work. Tony Clark came out with a, a strongly worded rebuke uh, of this, but also, it's funny because it's wait, like. <laughs> also, the, the teams want to be doing that. Like, well, yeah, it is very much like a, we're all looking for the guy who did yeah, this sort of situation. About? Wow, I but, really entered a register I was not prepared for. It crapped out yeah. like real fast. What it is, I Whew. guess it's that the teams that are handing out those long-term deals are being willing to, you know, this seems like a anti-Padres, anti-Mets uh, sort of. Those aren't the only teams that were handing out 10-plus uh, year contracts this past offseason. But, no. And it's obviously, I'm not surprised that Manfred would be against that also because, as we've discussed, it it is sort of a way of skirting the CBA when it comes to the competitive balance tax, right, and and spreading it out over more years, you know, whether you look at it as uh, trying to do an end around that or not. 
there have been at least talks about teams that considered doing it in a way that it would be kind of obvious that they were trying to lower the average annual yeah. value. So, you know, to the extent that he is uh, still very married to the the payroll suppression tax, which is basically what it is, then, of course, he would be against teams trying to get around it by just tacking years on. And because it's only certain teams and certain owners that were doing that, then I guess it's probably the mass of other owners. All the right. rumbles and rumors we heard about uh, owners being miffed about the Padres and the Mets, those are probably the owners that right. it, it, this reform is of interest to them, not necessarily to every team, but also, yeah, it's some owners who are handing out those deals. Yeah, you know, like, uh, and and they're not just doing it because they're kind. Mm-mm, no. So, couple last things. I noticed the other day, I, I was watching some baseball on the Yes Network. Oh, brag. <laughs> Could it be because the Angels were playing the Yankees? Uh, possibly. But I was watching, it was actually, uh, I was watching an Amazon game. One of the games was on Amazon. The one thing that I do like about the games being on streaming services, the, the video quality is really good. Yeah. Uh, not that it's bad on MLB TV, but you watch a game on Apple TV Plus and it's like 4K and you've got all yeah. these cool cameras and everything. It's kind of like, nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Get rid of the weird odds and we're in business. Right. So, uh, yes, basically, and, and this is not new. I went back to confirm that they were doing this last year, too. And while I confirmed that, I saw the FTX patches on the umpire outfits, which was very <laughs> funny in retrospect. It's like uh, that, much in the same way that when we watch 2020 highlights and see cardboard cutouts in the stands, it brings you back to a certain time and place. Those FTX patches really did the same. Not Not happy memories in either case. Anyway, what Yes does, and maybe it's not the only broadcast that does this, but it on the K zone will put the pitch velocity. So, yeah. you know, like the little dot goes up yeah. to mark the pitch location. And then right under that is the pitch speed. Right. In, in addition to having the pitch speed on the Chiron, like on the top or bottom. So it's kind of weird that it's in two places. And it was confusing to me at first because I saw a batted ball. I was watching a highlight and I just happened to see a batted ball. And then the speed flashed right under the location of the ball that was hit. And I thought, oh, that's the exit speed. They're, they're telling me how hard the ball was hit. Mm. And no, it wasn't that. It was the pitch speed. And that was kind of confusing because the pitch speed was different from the the batted ball speed. And I expected to see one and it was the other. And you're displaying it in multiple places. But that made me realize I don't know of any broadcast. And I asked Chris Hanel, who's our, our Chiron expert listener, and he wasn't aware of any broadcast that just show live exit speeds of batted balls just routinely. You know, like you hear them cited, obviously. Yeah often and and you might see a replay and, and they'll tell you how fast right. it was or there might be a graphic or something but you don't see it flashed just as a matter of course the way that you do on every pitch on every broadcast basically these days and I thought that was sort of strange and I was uh, just doing a little digging and, and looking to see if anyone was talking about this and came across an old tweet from Darren Willman, who used to be with uh, MLB working on Baseball Savant and StatCast. He's with the Rangers front office now. And in 2016, he tweeted, mark my words, exit velocity will be just like pitch velocity in five to 10 years. It'll be on every broadcast for every at bat. 
So that was, uh, what, seven years ago. So we're still in the five to 10 year range there. It hasn't happened, doesn't seem even close to happening. Tom Tango, who's still at MLP working on StackCast, he responded to that tweet. This is, again, March of 2016. He said, I think in two to three years on every broadcast and one to two years on half of them. So this is the the heady days of stat cast and exit velocity. And there were <laughs> estimates of five to 10 years or two to three years or one to two years. We'd be seeing it. It'd be pervasive. And it's still not, right? Like, I, there, I, as far as I know, there's no broadcast that shows it just routinely like every batted ball. And I'm sure a lot of people are fine with that and say, we don't need that. And I don't want another number cluttering up my screen and my experience. And that's fine. But I think I would welcome it. Like if it's if you're going to be showing me the pitch speed on every pitch and possibly even in two places, then I would like to see the batted ball speed because it does actually tell you something sometimes. You know, sometimes the ball coming off the bat it looks one way to you and then you realize after a few seconds and you see the trajectory and the camera angle changes and you realize, oh, that was not hit as hard as I thought it was, right? So if in that initial angle, before it switches to the field view and you can see how the ball is traveling, if it said like, oh, this is 105 or this is 85 or something, you know, broadly you can tell just from looking, but you can't always tell perfectly. And that would actually, I feel like, make me smarter when it comes to anticipating the result of that batted ball, of that contact. Because if I saw 105 or 110 or whatever, I'd be like, oh, okay, this is this is exciting. I mean, you know, you can kind of tell it's hard contact, but it, it can be deceptive sometimes. So I'm just, I'm sort of surprised that that hasn't happened. There don't seem to be any inroads when it comes to displaying that that regularly. Maybe other people appreciate mystery more than you do, Ben. That could be, you ever yeah. think of that? Maintain the suspense for another I, second or two, yeah. I think that broadcasts kind of, I'm fine with broadcasts sort of picking their spots mm-hmm. um, when it comes to, well, I'm kind of fine with them picking their spots when it comes to a lot of stuff. But with, like, sometimes, um, I don't know, I'm of two minds about home runs because on the one hand, sometimes they'll look, you know, they, they put up the exit velocity on like an Aaron Judge home run and they're like, it was hit so hard. And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, right. you put, put up the ones where he hits it like only a little bit where he's yeah. like, mm, like mm-hmm. half swing. I think you're right that it can be deceptive. And sometimes you think like, wow, that was so well struck. And then you're like, it was just sort of okay, okayly struck. It was mm-hmm. well, it was whelmed, you know, yes. it's a whelming yes. um, kind of batted ball. But I'm not saying it doesn't tell you anything. I'm just saying I don't feel compelled to see it. Because I think that, like, it's really nice to have pitch velocity for a lot of reasons, like, not the least of which is that if you're sitting at home, like, when you know the the velo of a pitcher can, like, be a data point when you're like, what was that? You know, Mm -hmm. you're sitting at home and you're like, I know what that was. And, like, Mm -hmm. one of the things that can help you figure that out is, like, how how hard it is. And so yes. I think that it's, and, and you know, like it's later in the, in the game and all of a sudden, well, it's not throwing so as hard. And you're like, oh, it's yes, pretty right. warm. Like, I, I think that it is, it tells you, it can tell you multiple things at once mm-hmm. in a way that makes it useful to have on the screen. Um, and on the exit velo stuff, I'm like, you know, sometimes take it or leave it, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's, that's, yeah. 
And, and I'd be fine with a more minimal broadcast if you want a more clean looking, just yeah. not everything cluttered up with numbers. That's okay. But but if you are going to clutter it up with numbers, if sure. you're going to show me pitch speed in multiple places on every pitch and you're going to put it in the K zone where the contact was, then I'd rather just see how hard it was hit than how hard it was thrown in multiple places. I'm just, sure. you know, like, yeah. just like flash you it. Can do, you, you can know. do a little swappity do. I'd be fine yeah. with a swappity do. Yeah, I don't know if there's a technical issue here, like whether maybe the exit speed is not transmitted as instantaneously as the pitch speed is, and that that's why it hasn't been adopted as quickly, but it, it seems to be pretty speedy. So I don't know if that is uh, getting in the way of this happening, but maybe. I just, I'd like to see it a little more often. Now that we know what a good exit speed is, because in 2016, I mean, we've had years of explaining like what is a hard hit ball, and it's it's kind of intuitive because it's not that different from the pitch speed scale, right. but just knowing like how important hitting the ball hard is and the years of kind of education that's gone on with that. And I know a lot of people are fed up and are like, I don't want to hear about exit speed. I know hitting the ball is hard is good. You'd think that would be obvious, but then you have a lot of people questioning whether hitting the ball hard is good or why we would ever need to know that. So I'd like to see it just kind of flashed after the contact, maybe somewhere, at least uh, if if we're going to have as many numbers as we do currently. I think think that might add something sure. to my spectator experience. Fair. Okay. Fair. Also, we should have mentioned, I think, Hobie Milner last time. A, mm. a couple of people pointed out this was yes. Hobie Milner erasure because we did a meet a major leaguer Hobie. about Hobie Harris and Hobie. Hogan Harris. And I was talking about how Hobie Harris is the first Hobie since the late, the recently departed Hobie Landreth. But, of course, there's Hobie Milner. It's just spelled differently. Yep. It's not a H-O-B-I-E. It's an H-O-B-Y. Yeah. I bet and he gets called Hobby too. I wonder. Yeah. It, it seems uh, even more obvious to me that H-O-B-Y would be Hobie. But I'm sure he has uh, encountered both. Anyway, he's uh, in the big leagues currently. And, and someone pointed out he's with the Brewers now. And Hobie Harris was with the Brewers in the minors last year. So we could have had a scenario where we had multiple Hobies on the same pitching staff if he had stayed with the Brewers and, and made the majors there. Could have had double Hobie action. Yeah. And then I would have ho Hobie, double Hobie, like a <laughs> double. I don't know. I got to keep working on it. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep working on it. I'm, I'm happy to have both Hobies uh, even in, in separate places and with separate spellings. The more Hobies, the better, frankly. Under your and, wise name. Yeah, and, and I meant to mention last week when it, this was first announced, but did you see the news about the Marlins uh, having a, a Bartman promotion? So, so the Marlins, they announced that they were going to have a Steve Bartman appreciation weekend when mm. the Cubs visit Miami later this month. And yeah, terrible idea. Mm. Like, stop picking on Steve Bartman. Yeah, like leave, the, the, leave the guy alone. Yeah, the idea, I guess, is that, you know, 20th anniversary and the Cubs are coming to town and we're the Marlins. So we're desperate to get people to come to the park. So <sighs> Steve Bartman appreciation. And Bartman is, like, he's been picked on for so long. And, and, it, like, and changed he's, the course of his life. Yeah, and, and he's talked about, like, he just kind of wants to be left alone and, like, he doesn't want people to, you know, do things like this <laughs> without consulting him yeah. and everything. So so there was a, a, a round of backlash, as there should have been, I think, to this idea. Yeah. And the Marwins fortunately have walked it back, but have walked it back 
in an amusing way, at least to me, which is that so so basically they sent out this marketing email and a bunch of media members got it. And it said Bartman Appreciation Weekend, April 28th to 30th. And it showed uh, Jazz Chisholm on the top left and Juan Pierre on the top right. And some people, you know, had blogs and, and tweets about this and everything. And then it it came out. This came from the Marlins ticket office. And everyone was like, well, this sucks. And then there was a subsequent report, I think, uh, like a day or days later, where it was reported by uh, Andy Slater, I think was the one who who got this scoop, if you can call it that. He's, you know, like a Miami talk show person, on-air mm-hmm. person. And he said, Slater scoop. <laughs> <laughs> Love having branded scoops. Oh, the, mass- no. the, the Marlins tell me there were never plans for a Bartman promotion, and this graphic was sent in error. What? A new email will be sent out with the correct graphic, I am told. <laughs> so so they're trying to say, oh, we never meant to do this. Uh, it has nothing to do with the fact that so many people condemned it immediately. No, we know this was uh, this was a mistake, just uh, an honest mistake here. Never meant to do apartment appreciation weekend, never actually planned it. Didn't mean to send out this graphic. How plausible what? is that? Like it's not. On. They're lying. I'm it's sorry. It's not at all. I mean, could that happen? Like, could you either have had like some rogue employee who did that, just like as a troll job, or someone made the graphic internally just as a joke? And I don't know. Like, how does that? How does it go from that right. to sending out a mass email? Though is the thing. It <laughs> so, doesn't accidentally. That, no. Yeah, I I don't think so. I don't no, know. I think they're lying. I'm sorry. Like, I don't want to <laughs> accuse anyone of anything, but I'm accusing them of lying. Yeah. I think that they're that's you. You gotta like they got graphics involved. You know, right. somebody like spent part of their day doing that and then yeah. like had to open up MailChimp or whatever the hell and, and yeah. like send it to a bunch of people. Like I yeah. just say, you know, we thought better of this. We got some feedback and yeah. you're right. Yeah. It doesn't sound plausible, but I'm glad it's not happening either yeah. way. And uh, lastly, my attention was directed to uh, an article in the sporting news that said, Jared Kelnick is finally producing like the Mets wanted parentheses. Sorry, New York. And this was kind of funny because, like, this is, you know, kind of a, a transparent uh, a traffic ploy, I guess. Like, you know, Jared no Kelnick, he's doing well. He's uh, seventh in Exwo, but just a few spots behind Yanti Diaz. But we've talked about his hot streak, too. But this made me wonder how many times since that trade was made has the perception swung oh, about yeah. who won the deal, right? Yeah. Like, how many discreet changes in perceived leadership or victory of that trade. Because that was December 3rd, 2018. So, you know, four and a half years ago, that trade was made where Kelnick went with Gerson Bratista, Jay Bruce, Justin Dunn, Anthony Swarzak Swarzak to the Mariners for Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz, and Cash. So, like, the initial perception, I'm sure it, it varied. Sure. But... You know, like people were kind of like, oh, they they gave up a lot with Kelnick, right? I mean, obviously excited to get Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano was, uh, even though he was old at that point, he was still productive. And, but Kelnick was a really highly touted prospect and a lot of people thought, oh, the Mets will, will rue this day down the road. Yeah. But then Edwin Diaz went from being like lights out, incredible closer 
to like five plus ERA guy. Right. And and then we know what happened with Cano, right? With the, the PD yeah. suspensions and not playing well anymore. But then Edwin Diaz went back to being an incredible closer in 2020. But then 2021, he, you know, wasn't quite as great. And then 2022, he was unbelievably great. Right. And then this year, of course, he's out for the year because of his injury. Right. And meanwhile, Jared Kelnick and his prospect rankings, his fortunes were only improving. But then when he got to the big leagues, it looked like it he might be a bust. Yeah. yeah. So, like, how many times? I wonder if you were to take the temperature on this trade at various discrete points over the past four and a half years, like uh, how much, what percentage of the time yeah. would would the Mets have been perceived as the winners and what percentage of the time would the Mariners have been perceived as the winners? Because like, obviously if Kelnick has a great season this year, well, Diaz, Diaz is up is for out, the year. Yeah. Well, then it's like, oh, the Mets, uh, okay, close the book. The Mets won the trade, you know? So it's just gone back and forth so many times. It just goes to show that you need to wait a while yes. to actually pronounce a victor, at least, you know, when it comes to the results. You should probably pronounce the victor based on day one, what you knew at the time. But also when you're looking retroactively, that can also swing several times. Right. And like, you know, I remember at the time uh, Mariners fans were excited because the perception was, well, they've they've moved this money. Right. They've gotten out from under the Cano contract. How Mm -hmm. incredible. And then that money didn't really get like reinvested in an obvious way, right? It Mm. wasn't like they went out. I mean, obviously they've signed Castillo to a big extension. They signed Julio to a big extension, but in terms of their free agent spending other than Robbie Ray, it's been pretty modest. And so like the perception of the money piece of it has changed a couple of times. And you're right. Like this year with Diaz out and Kelnick on this heater, like if he continues to have a great year, will we look and say, well, it's swung back in the Mariners favor. It's a very complicated It's a complicated thing. I just want everyone to have a good time, you know. Mm -hmm. It's really (laughs) – I don't dislike any of the players that were involved in that that move. Um, And it is – you know, I I feel for these guys when they become these like totems of the yeah. the success of a front office, and it's like they have don't they have enough pressure to do well without us being like freaking weird about it? <laughs> yeah. So we'll see if this is the last time that right. perception changes, or if uh, this isn't actually the Kelnick breakout, and then Edwin Diaz uh, How comes back. Dare you? Yeah. I mean, I guess Edwin Diaz is on a new deal now, so right. even if he continues to do well, right? He, he signed his own big. Contract, yeah. Right. Can you can you count that toward the trade or not? If you might not still have him, you might not assign that extension if you hadn't traded for him. But at some right. point, it doesn't really count toward the trade. It's like a new separate kind of arrangement. I think it. You know, it is and it isn't right because on the one hand, sure, but also you know, you clearly it went well, or they wouldn't have wanted yeah. to assign him to that extension. Eventually. So like yeah. that's a. That's a consideration. I mean, I think that for me, the ideal scenario is Kelnick is incredible this year. Awesome. And then Diaz comes back and he's his old self. And then, like, then, then, Ben, we could have, like, you know, them being really good. And because we have, you know, a balanced schedule now, we could have really good Kelnick facing really good Edwin Diaz. And then we can keep litigating this forever. But at the end of it, it'll be like, oh, they're so great. They're both of them. You know, Mm -hmm. then that would. I want everyone to have a good time. 
yeah, we can just decide who won the trade based on their head-to-head record. Right, right. <laughs> that's, that's the fairest way to settle this. That is I the think. fairest way. Single combat between Edwin <laughs> Diaz and Jared Kelnick on a baseball field. On a baseball field. Mm-hmm. Not on, not because, you know, Kelnick is very muscular and, and Edwin is still just a little skinny thing. And so I would worry about like direct combat that might be damaging to, to, mm-hmm. to Edwin in a way that yeah. I would not support. They have uh, not faced each other in the majors as of yet. I guess it all comes down to whether we end up calling it the Kelnick trade or the Diaz trade. History will be written by the victor. All right, so we will end with the past blast. This comes from 1996 and from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. Here's what he has for us. Umps lowball players in strike zone experiment. In 1996, MLB sought to change up the strike zone a bit. As another chapter in the long story of the league trying to shorten games, an idea came forth to expand the strike zone. Umpires were instructed to begin calling strikes on pitches that came in at the bottom of a batter's knee. Previously, the zone ended at the top of the knee. Presumably, it was thought that more strikes would lead to quicker at-bats and shorter games. The only problem, at least according to a May 7th, 1996 Associated Press article, was that the idea was never fully put into practice. Mm. Hitters, pitchers, catchers, managers, coaches, and even some umpires agree, the article said, the effort to drop the strike zone below the knee has disappeared. Myth is not even a close interpretation. It never happened. It never was going to happen, quipped Royals pitcher Tim Belcher. It was just a waste of paper and memos. Umpires seem split on whether their colleagues and they themselves were changing how they called the zone. One AL ump said he did not notice any effect on the game, while an NL ump said, from what I've seen, everyone is trying to make an honest effort to do that. Statistics seem to back up assumptions that no change had truly been made. According to the article, games in the 1996 season at the time of writing were an average of two hours, 52 minutes in 1995. The average time of game was two hours, 54 minutes. I saw an article about this in the New York Times just uh, from February of 1996 that talked about this too, the Rules Committee making this announcement that the lower limit of the strike zone dropped from the top of the batter's knee to the hollow beneath the kneecap. And this, yeah, I love the hollow beneath the new cap. The Bill Murray, the committee chairman, not that Bill Murray, but... Said this really rule clar- excited for a second <laughs> yeah. there. This rule clarification is designed to return the strike zone to the previous definition. The upper limit of the zone remained a horizontal line midway between the top of the shoulders and the top of the belt line. And it does say that the change grew out of a series of recommendations by a committee last year that sought to reduce the time it takes to play a nine-inning game. With an expanded strike zone, the reasoning goes there will be fewer walks and batters might be induced to swing more frequently, resulting in shorter times at bat. No one expects a reduction in the amount of grumbling over balls and strike calls by umpires. But the other stuff didn't seem to happen either, and it didn't really change offense uh, perceptibly. I mean, the strikeout rate, the walk rate was almost identical in 95 and 96 and 97 for that matter. So just uh, didn't really seem to have much of an effect. And this is uh, kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about how refreshing it is for MLB's new rules changes just to work, like to have a demonstrative, like to have an effect, to have a clear effect, to have the intended effect, to to actually 
be enforced and have everyone kind of on the same page. Again, not necessarily when it comes to Phil Cuzzy and the sticky stuff. That's been troublesome. But at least when it comes to the pitch clock, like that's worked. Everyone knows what's happening. It's applied consistently. It's having the intended effect as opposed to this sort of thing where it's right. just very piecemeal and it's like each umpire kind of deciding on their own whether they and you know you're going from the top of the knee to the hollow of the knee like how do you even and this is pre-pitch fx and everything i mean how are you even going to know whether that's right. happening can you even tell the difference with your eyes between top of the kneecap and hollow of the knee it's just it seems sort of set up to fail or at least yeah. not to have any particular effect. And that seems like more what I associate like baseball rules changes where they're all kind of problems and no one agrees on how to do it. And it's just ultimately impotent. And that's not what we're getting this year. So no. that's nice. We've gotten the reduction in game times. It's it's actually gone swimmingly and no one's writing articles like doesn't seem any different. It doesn't seem like anyone's actually applying this. That was the case in the, the proto-history of the pitch clock, but not now. So that at least is uh, different when it comes to now versus 1996. And game times that year, nine-inning games went one minute longer that mm. year, as did all games combined one minute longer than the previous year. And then they got a minute longer the year after that. <laughs> so no effect whatsoever. And then it kept going on and on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you got to be careful messing with the strike zone. Like yes. People still talk about maybe the strike zone as a potential tool to try to curb strikeouts. And it could be, you know, it, it's it's one of the arrows in your quiver. But sure. I would be hesitant. I don't know if it would be a last resort, but I'd, I'd slow rule that just because, uh, as Bill James has often said, like changing something in the strike zone, it's like an inch there is, uh, I forget how he put it, but, you know, like a, a mile in the outfield or something. Yeah. I mean, there's not actually a mile in the outfield. But you know what I mean? Like, Yes. One one little bit of real estate there has a an outsize effect relative to anywhere else yes. in the field, the base paths, the outfield, wherever it is. So you got to be careful because there have been unintended consequences. You yes. know, in the 60s, you change the strike zone and then you get another dead ball error and you get the year yeah. of the pitcher. So there are things you can do without messing with the strike zone that are maybe a little less dangerous, a little less risk of, of unintended consequences. Yeah, I think that it's, um, you're right that it's an arrow, but it's one whose path we have a hard time predicting sometimes, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't always uh, fly true. Would you like me to do um, a pass blast and I'll do it uh, the entire thing in my Alia voice? Like, um, <laughs> yeah, I sure. have a message from the past from Moadib. <laughs> oh, please. I yes. know that other people probably don't appreciate it or enjoy it as much as I enjoy doing it, but it's you know, it's at least half my podcast, so mm -hmm. sometimes I'm going to bust it out. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, the strike zone did eventually get lower because yeah. of, well, because uh, it came to match the rules book strike zone once we got pitch effects right. and everything. And, and then also we got framing and the low strike. And so the bottom of the zone did keep expanding and strikeouts went up, but game times did not go down. No. <laughs> so. No. Best laid plans. Yep. All right. Well, while we wait to see whether Madison Bumgarner becomes an Oakland A, 
That would be a match made in, well, not heaven, that's for sure. I want to recant or retract my tepid qualified support for the double hook DH rule on the last episode. I think I said something to the effect of, I don't dislike it, but it wouldn't work. This is one of the experimental rules that will be tried again in the Atlantic League this year. You can use a DH for the whole game, provided that your starting pitcher completes at least five innings. If not, then you lose the DH for the remainder of the game. I approve of the goal, which is to get starting pitchers to go deeper into games. Got a good email from listener Lori, which was lengthy, so I won't read it here, but taking me to task for not condemning the double hook DH rule outright, specifically because it would limit Shohei Otani's plate appearances, which is an important consideration. I think what happened was I initially formed my impression of the double hook DH rule in a pre-universal DH world, and in that context, it was maybe more acceptable, but to implement it now in a universal DH world, well, that would be weird because we wouldn't want pitchers to go back to hitting. I guess you could stock your bench with pinch hitters, which would be good. And if you did that, you'd have fewer relievers available, and so starters would have to go deeper into games. But I would like to incentivize starters to go deeper into games by limiting the number of pitchers on the active roster, as I have argued on podcast and in print. And yeah, I don't think we want worse hitters hitting, depending on how starting pitchers do, especially because so many of them do fail to go five these days. Definitely don't want to bring back pitcher hitters. So not only do I think that this would not work that well, I also don't think it makes much sense anymore. But it seems unlikely to be implemented at the major league level, which is probably something I would have said about the zombie runner once upon a time. So we must maintain our vigilance when it comes to rules we don't want adopted. Today's Effectively Wild intro theme is courtesy of listener Nate Emerson. Enjoyed this one as I've enjoyed most of them, all of them for that matter. It's been really fun to see these show up in our inbox and you can keep sending them if you're so inclined to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, ad-free on most episodes, and get themselves access to some perks. Daniel, Sean of Sulphur, RBTRTDVDSN, Brett Hoban, not Hobie, Hoban, and Lauren Odessa. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the wonderful Patreon Discord group. Gotta get yourself in there if you haven't already. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes of the show, or a show, that Meg and I host and post for Patreon supporters, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and playoff live streams and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a supporter, you can message us through that site. If not, you can email us at podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. And you can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. There's also an Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Because this town is so sick and baby. Just from your heart down into mine. This town is so sick baby. I said. In the summertime.